You are listening to EE Times On Air. This is EE Times Current. I'm Eric Singer. Welcome to Brains and Machines, a deep dive into neuromorphic engineering and biologically inspired technology. In this episode, Dr. Giulia D'Angelo talks to Professor Guillermo Gallego from the Technical University of Berlin. They discuss the application of the new generation of bio-inspired event-driven cameras and their algorithms to extract cues of motion, depth, and optical flow estimation. But first, today's EE Times Current Highlights. Three D NAND can't change the laws of physics. With Optane mothballed and emerging memory still surfacing, the gap between three D NAND flash and DRAM persists. Understanding the big spend on advanced packaging facilities. Leading chip makers in recent years spent tens of billions of dollars on advanced chip packaging facilities. Sandbox using AI and hybrid metrology to cut costs and boost yields. The hybrid metrology tool promises to improve metrology accuracy for etch and deposition steps, ultimately reducing process technology development costs. Now, back to Brains and Machines. Your hosts are Dr. Sonny Baines of University College London and Dr. Giulia D'Angelo of the Italian Institute of Technology. Welcome to Brains and Machines. I'm Sunny Baines. And I am Giulia D'Angelo. In today's episode, Giulia will talk to Guillermo Gallego, a professor at the Technical University of Berlin in Germany, about his methods and approaches to event-driven cameras. After the interview, we'll be talking to Ralph Etienne Cummings from Johns Hopkins University about the issues raised. Thanks, Sunny. Guillermo is a professor at the Technical University of Berlin and his research revolves around algorithms for event-based vision, whilst exploiting classical computer vision approaches. Event-based cameras differ from classical frame-based cameras. Instead of capturing images at a fixed rate, they asynchronously measure pixel-per-pixel brightness changes, and they output a stream of events encoding the time, location, and sign of the brightness changes. They reach microsecond temporal resolution, high dynamic range, low power consumption, and high pixel bandwidth. Guillermo is a well-known figure in the event-driven scientific community, and he has done a great job in disseminating his work. He will present these cameras to us and how to exploit their inherent capabilities. He was born in Avila in Spain. He graduated in Madrid. And he has done a master in mathematical engineering, in science and mathematics. And then he continued with a PhD in electrical and computer engineering. Later on, he joined David Scaramuzza's lab in Zurich, Switzerland. And now is a professor at the Technical University of Berlin since 2019. So welcome to Brains and Machines. Thanks very much for coming to Berlin to visit our lab. It was really nice to be here. Your research interest fall within areas of robotics, computer vision, signal processing, numerical methods, a lot of things. But I'd like to know a little bit more about you and where do you think that you have given more contribution scientifically? It's a tough question because every stage in life is different. And what you think that you have contributed the most, maybe it's not what the community feels that it's your contribution, right? So if I have to look back, I feel like I contributed to remote sensing of the surface of the ocean when I was doing my PhD. The things that I'm maybe known 
for the most is for my latest research on event-based vision, which is something that I started when I moved to, to Zurich to work with David Escaramuza in the robotics perception group. Then let's go a little bit uh, on the details of what you have actually done practically. Everything starts when we talk about event-driven vision with event-driven cameras. And actually, like a nice quote that I'd like to mention is the quote that actually starts your paper. This is the quote for Misha Maold that contributed to the creation of the silicon retina. That is, the brain is imagination. And that was exciting to me. I wanted to build a chip that could imagine something. So I'd like you to introduce a little bit the even driven cameras, what they are for the community that do not know them. Yeah, so first the, the paper is it's a nice collaborative effort among several people I was, that happened to lead the effort. But, uh, it was really many people who contributed there. The introduction, it's maybe trying to be a bit catchy. I remember watching the videos about this pioneer, Misha Mahowald, who was a biologist trying to do the PhD in a lab of carver meat. He was a professor in circuit design and she wanted to put biology into the circuits that were being developed. And I remember there many years afterwards, there are documentaries about this. And I remember watching the documentary and this is one part that uh, caught my attention and that's why decided to write the introduction of the survey paper with his because I, I thought it would be a different introduction than the rest of the papers. So event cameras or event-driven cameras, event-based cameras, neuromorphic cameras, they all go by many different names, are uh, cameras that try to mimic the uh, wear pathway in the human visual system. These were cameras, as I said, they started somewhere in the end of the late 1980s, beginning of the 1990s, with Misha Mahowal and Cover Meat had also many students like uh, Toby Delbrook that then moved to Zurich to the Institute of Neuroinformatics and they kept on working on developing these neuromorphic cameras. In a nutshell, they basically tried to mimic the transient pathway in the human visual system with a simplified three-layer model of the retina with photoreceptors, ganglion cells and polar cells. And from a signal processing point of view, if I have to explain it, it's basically every pixel works independently, it's smart, and the, the light that comes at the pixel, it's converted into a spike train, like a sequence of spikes in the same way that those spikes would go through a retina into the brain through the optical nerve. So the event cameras are con converting the continuous light that arrives at the pixel into asynchronous spikes that detect whether they intensity is increasing or decreasing by some predefined amount. So summing up, there are smart pixels that work autonomously and they respond asynchronously. They give it information with events. They give it information of the X and Y coordinates in the visual field. They give it information of the polarity and the timestamp. That is actually what drives our research. But why do we use them? We have high temporal resolution. We get rid of redundant data, right? Then can you please explain or expand a little bit about the advantages of the event-driven cameras? Yes, so the advantages of these sensors are that because they are not capturing an image, they don't have a fixed exposure time, they don't need to wait to collect photons to generate an image. Basically, every pixel is autonomous, as you said, and then they can produce an output as soon as something is happening. And so they have very low latency in the order of microseconds in lab conditions. Because every pixel also works independently, 
it has its own set point. And so you can have pixels that adapt to very bright areas and pixels that adapt to very dark areas, even on the same scene. Also, they have a very high dynamic range that allows these pixels to see like solar eclipse and very bright and dark areas. Like if you are driving inside a tunnel and you're coming outside, you will see both inside and outside the tunnel. Then one thing that actually uh, it's difficult to do with even driven cameras is the recognition of objects that you have in front of us. We do it, but of course, it's difficult compared with the recognition that we do with the frame-based camera. What I want to know is which kind of applications do you think that are more suitable for these cameras to take all of this advantages that we said, the high temporal resolution, the high dynamic range, like this low latency, this getting rid of all of this redundant data. I, I think this is pretty much motivated by the visual pathway. So there is this simplified hypothesis that says that we have two visual pathways in our visual system. And one is the so-called what pathway that is in charge of the details and to do recognition. This is mostly with cells that are located in the fovea and the other one is the where pathway which has cells all over the retina not just at the fovea and they react much faster and while it's possible to use the data coming out of the event cameras to recognize objects that's for sure there are many papers about this i think they excel at motion estimation or detecting motion if you compensate for the motion you could still produce an image that you can use for recognition that's for sure i'm not saying that you cannot use it for recognition. You can, but probably they are better for motion estimation. This was the response I was expecting in my mind, yes. So if we speak concretely about application, for example, like drones could be a nice task uh, to use this sort of motion estimation that you were talking about, right? So you see your research that is also going around motion estimation, working on drones? Do you think like this could be an application that would work in your case? I don't uh, work on drones right now. I was, I had some colleagues when I was at a postdoc in Zurich, they were working on drones. They're still working on drones. I try to think of it more of a basic research that can be applied to any robot. So the motion estimation, we try to build algorithms or something called a spatial AI, which is like an evolution of the problem of simultaneous localization and mapping in robotics. The problem is if you have a robot that has some sensors, in this case, cameras, no matter if it's a normal camera or an event-based camera, the first things that the robot needs to, to do is to build a map of its surroundings and localize itself with respect to this map. So we are building all the technology in this motion estimation application. So when the robot is moving and it tries to build the map and localize itself in the map, this all requires understanding of motion. We are building that technology for kind of any type of robot. It could be a drone, but it, mostly nowadays we work with data sets and these are data sets of cars driving on streets through roads. So we talked about possible applications for event-driven cameras and uh, how you can process the event stream for specific tasks and et cetera. But you actually propose a unifying framework to tackle different estimations problems. Can you please explain a little bit better to me what is this unifying framework that you proposed? Yes. So this framework that has picked up in the community, we call it the 
contrast maximization framework, event alignment framework, or motion compensation framework goes by different names. The idea is that these events, which are produced by these neomorphic cameras, they detect intensity changes. And these intensity changes could come because you have a flickering light in front of the camera or because you have a moving pattern of edges, like a moving object in front of the camera. It's in the second situation where this framework works best. But the assumption there is that the events, so the data produced by the camera is caused by moving edges, but not by flickering lights. The idea is to try to recover the motion of the edges that cause those events by compensating it. So just to clarify, uh, we all know that using event-driven cameras, we only obtain events from edges of objects that are moving, right? What do you mean exactly when you say compensation? What we mean by compensation is that as you are moving an object in front of the camera, the edges are moving on the image plane and where the edge or the contours of the objects are passing are triggering the events. And so if you just look at the events over a certain amount of time, it looks like they are blurred because the object was moving in front of the camera. But if you look them in a different direction, they are not. So if you try to undo the motion that the edge was performing, you will be able to line up all the events into all corresponding events to the same pixel location. That's what we mean by compensating. We shift the events until we get an image, an intermediate representation that it's an image that is sharpest. This is what we mean by compensating the motion. We try to find what is the, the best motion hypothesis that shows us a map of the world, a map of the scene that is sharp. I see. Okay. So in this sense, it's maximizing the contrast or trying to understand the motion like doing the motion estimations that keeps you the best representation of what happened, right? Yeah, so it's called contrast because sharpness, when you see an image and the image is sharp, sharpness is related to contrast in vision. And there are different measures, different ways to measure contrast. It's in Michelson contrast, the RMS contrast. So psychologists have studied many different ways to quantify contrast. In this case, we use the RMS contrast, which is given by the variance. So in the method, we were using initially the variance of the image warp events to measure the contrast, which the name comes really from the trying to use what was already out there from psychology, from computational psychology in vision studies. But there are many other objective functions that you can use to measure sharpness. You can measure sharpness by looking at the strengths of the edges of an image. What do you mean when you say strength? Yes, so if you take an image, you could compute something like a derivative operator and that gives you the edges. And if you have transition from black to white, that's like an edge. And the stronger the transition, the darker the one side of the edge and the brighter the other side of the edge, that's what we call like a transition then. The farther these intensities are apart, then the stronger the edge. And we can try to measure these strengths by looking at uh, the slope of this derivative. That is basically trying to do what the bipolar cell do, enhancing the contrast. So basically in this unifying framework for contracts uh, maximization, you seek points for trajectories, you describe the relative motion, and then you further allow the estimation of short and long 
characteristics uh, such as like OptiFlow and monocular depth estimation and data association. So I'd like to know a little bit more again about the applications, like where do you use this sort of models, these algorithms that enhance the contrast and allows you to have a sharper defined scene. Where do you see this application? So this framework is called, or we call it unifying framework because it, as you said, it tries to tackle many different problems. It's a nice thing that with the same idea of how you process the events, you can try to solve many different problems. One problem is the estimation of motion on the image plane. This is called optical flow in computer vision. Another problem is the estimation of a moving camera in the world. This is called like simultaneous localization or mapping or visual odometry. This is a different type of motion representation. It's in three dimensions. Depth estimation is part of this problem. Motion segmentation is the problem of trying to split or segment objects according to their velocities. The nice idea is that all these problems to be solved, you need to be able to estimate motion and the, the conscious maximization framework, basically what it allows you is to estimate the motion. So if you can use it, if you can leverage it to once you estimate the motion or, or at the same time that you are estimating motion, basically you can solve all these other problems. The applications go from what I said, from optical flow estimation, which can be used for time to contact, uh, obstacle avoidance, motion segmentation. You can even do event denoising with this or even uh, image reconstruction. You can, if you first estimate the motion, then you can use this image of warp events to integrate it and get absolute intensity. Let's explain a little bit why, because of course people do not understand if they do not work exactly with even driven cameras, why do we need to remove noise? Yes, so event cameras are low power sensors. They are trying to mimic the, the three-layer model of the retina and they really burn little power and they are operating in, in subthreshold conditions. So they have a huge amount of noise. Noise, it's often a problem. It's even more of a problem in the darker the scene because they operate in logarithmic scales. So the darker the scene, the larger the noise. And so it's almost always a good idea to try to reduce the noise as much as possible early on or increase the strength of the good uh, part of the signal-to-noise ratio to then process the data much more efficiently. You can even say one of the good things about the event denoising or removing noise early on is that then you are saving bandwidth later on because you are not transmitting as many events as before. You are basically throwing away all the events that are noise and therefore you, you will not need to process them later on. Mm -hmm. The last questions that I would like to, to give you is, so we work with even driven cameras, we have pixels that are working autonomously, then you have this sparse output from these cameras, right? So you have this stream of events. And then most of the time, what we do is collect those events to get back <laughs> to frames. Most of the time I have been uh, asked this question, why do you do frames after collecting again events? And the, the response I try to give is the fact that we can manipulate those frames, right? So we know how we want to create those frames. We, we can collect the number of events. We can collect events because of the period that happened. So we are much more flexible, let's say. What's your response to this? Yeah, there are, this is kind of like an argument where we try to <laughs> sell the the benefits of the camera and you say that it's a synchronous wire, should we then go back and generate frames? There are, as I see it, there are many different representations. We work with event data, but the data is completely unfamiliar to us. We 
are more used to working with images, not with dots in space-time and with polarity. So it's even hard to visualize it. So just generating an image out of it makes it easy to just look at the, at the data or the quality of the data. But so there are many more representations. So we try to find alternative ways to represent the data to pass it to an algorithm. Yes, the most obvious one is taking the events, collecting them for a few milliseconds or a few number of events, and uh, give like an event frame, if you want to call it. Another one would be to just record the, the timestamp of the last event per pixel, and this is called like a time map or a time surface. These are all alternative representations, and there is a whole field trying to study what is the best representation that you can use to then pass it to the next algorithm. So I try to answer this question also in the course that I teach at TU Berlin, and I try to give my students four answers for this, for the particular case of event frames. And one of them is more or less what you mentioned, that we know how to operate them with them. So it's when we take the events and we collect them into a frame or an image, we are basically making the data compatible with everything that we have. Then we're basically converting something that we know it's unfamiliar to us into an image that we have then thousands of algorithms to work with these images. If you can make your data now compatible with conventional computer vision algorithms, it's probably a good strategy for something. What for? Maybe to reutilize many things that you know about these methods, many statistics, many trained artificial neural networks. Another reason is that events are mostly triggered by moving edges. So these frames are not just random frames. They are frames that tell us information about the contours and the edges in the scene. And that has a very nice, very intuitive and informative interpretation. These are edge maps. Basically, we are converting the events into edge maps that the edges carries a lot of the information in the scene. So in a sense, even if we have an event, a, a pixel with events that tell us that there is an edge there and the pixel nearby that doesn't have an event, it tells us that in that location, there is no edge. That's also informative. So the presence or the absence of edges is both informative. Another reason that I try to give is that you can generate these frames to do like a baseline method for something event-driven that you want to develop later on. So you can quickly prototype convert the events into frames, run any algorithm, and this will give you like a baseline accuracy that you need to reach with your algorithm. And then you try to reach the same accuracy or better accuracy with an event-driven approach without converting into frames. And the last one that I tell them is that the frames preserve the high dynamic range property because they are just built on events and the events are high dynamic range. So the frames will have the same high dynamic range properties. And you can also build them asynchronously. You can build them as you want. You don't need to build them at any externally given rate. You can generate them with every 10,000 events. You can generate a frame and the next frame will be at different time. So they can also preserve some kind of asynchrony of the data. So if you preserve HDR, they are asynchronous. They are informative about edges. They obviously have many advantages. They make everything compatible. They achieve a high degree of compatibility with conventional computer vision, then why not? Another question that I'd like to ask is, please, can you tell me a little bit the dark side? So the disadvantages of using event-driven cameras and doing frames with event-driven cameras. Yeah, they, as we said, uh, event frames have some appealing advantages to make it compatible, but they have the disadvantage that then to create these frames, you are burning power. 
which some people will say is suboptimal. You should try to avoid burning power on recreating these frames. It also has the disadvantage that it's quantizing the event timestamps. You have this amazing sensor that gives you times, uh, data with timestamps in the order of microseconds. And to generate the frames, typically what you will do is you will collect many of them and throw away the time information. So that's not ideal. And another disadvantage is that you have some latency to collect this data and generate the, the event frames. You need to wait for a certain number of events to happen and then say, okay, now I will generate this event frame. And so if you're interested in high-speed applications, then maybe for these reasons, you will not like to generate these event frames in terms of latency, uh, quantizing timestamps. The other problem is that you have to decide how many events, and this is a key parameter and may be difficult to tune. So some applications you want to do based on uh, time, you want to say, I want to have uh, one of these event frames every 10 milliseconds on the applications would be more like I want to have an event frame every 10,000, 20,000 events, depending on the resolution of the camera. But these are just some ends on the spectrum. There are some hybrid strategies that try to combine so that you have events everywhere in the image, not just the events that happen due to the camera motion or the events that happen due to an independent moving object in the scene. So there are many kind of difficulties or challenges that arise when you have to decide how many events to actually collect in an event frame. So thanks to Professor Guillermo Gallego for coming to Brains and Machines. Thanks very much for, for your visit and for your kind words. It's been a pleasure and I wish you good luck. Thanks, Julia. For more about Guillermo Gallego's work, please go to brainsandmachines.net. And now we welcome our regular commentator, Ralph Etienne Cummings from Johns Hopkins University. Hi, Sunny. Hi, Julia. Hi, Ralph. So let's get into it. Sunny, what did you think? I found this interview very interesting. Strange, though, because I've been reading a lot and talking to a lot of people about event cameras one way or another. I went to visit Prophecy in Paris recently. You know, I was at Indy Zurich and I saw some of the stuff that they're doing. Of course, it's Sense. So there have been a lot of event cameras around. So I think this work is very interesting. But what I'm wondering now, <laughs> maybe I'm just getting bored, is that all that the eye can do? I, I just, after writing about it so much, I, I went to see Peter Dudek down in Manchester over the summer, and he's doing some really interesting stuff. And I look at the eye, and I know the eye is doing all sorts of things beyond motion estimation. And ultimately, I can see that it's a nice place to start, but can't we talk about something else? What, why aren't we seeing more progress? Now, Ralph, I know you're a big expert in vision. Am I being a little bit too hard on this at the moment? Well, yes and no. I think you are being hard, which is good, because I think it pushes the field. However, I think from a pure kind of what is important, what is salient in the information that we process, motion is up there, right? You can live without color. You can live with a little bit of blurry image and so on. No problems. But without motion, you are in trouble, right? There's a classical example of you put a dot on the nose of an elephant, you put it on a couple of legs, you put it in the tail, and if it's static, you can't tell what it is. You see just like a few dots. But the moment that this elephant starts moving, all of a sudden, oh yeah, that is an elephant. Absolutely no question. 
So motion is super important. So the fact that most of the event-based cameras are based on triggered by motion is obviously the right thing to, to at minimum to have, right? So now comes the next layer. So what are the other additional features that one can add? So then I would basically take a little bit of a side path and say, well, what happens in our retina? Our retina is definitely triggered by motion, but there's also a little bit of static image um, that's been centered on. There's a little bit uh, um, filtering of different speeds of this motion, right? Some things that are sustained, something that are really fast, all of that additional information is also being spent. So spatial temporal filtering of the image will help reconstruct or better understand what it is. And of course, then it, you know, it matches so many other aspects of what goes on in neuromorphics, right? So it makes it a little bit more like a CNN, you know, like a promotion neural network, or it makes it a little bit more similar to the saliency maps that, that we've seen, or it makes it a little bit similar to the HMAX models that Tommy uh, Poggio and, and company developed over the years. So all these different sensor-based processing will make the final outcome or the final set of information that we are available to you more rich. However, there is that same issue of how much do we need versus how much must we have, right? That trade-off again, right? So if I'm putting something on a drone that's just going to go around, uh, help me drive around or something like that, I don't, mainly I don't need all this. Memory motion is sufficient. But if I want to do something where I'm trying to recognize objects, and in fact, Gallego says this, right? So he has to basically do a reconstruction of the static image in a way in order for him to get enough data to do to the recognition. Um, so if there was already something in there that could allow you to reconstruct the images, then maybe you would need to do that. So that's why the additional pieces may be important. So the reason that I've been thinking about this a lot, and I know I hark back to things I wrote about a long time ago, but I remember when I was based at Berkeley, Mm-hmm. I saw the work that uh, Leon Chua, who of course is most famous for the Memrister, but has done a lot of other things, including these things that we used to call CNNs CNN, before yeah. CNN <laughs> before CNNs became convolutional neural networks. They used to be cellular neural networks, and they were very. I thought they were beautiful. I just thought they were really elegant ideas. So the idea is that you had a, essentially an array of pixels that were all interconnected together by nearest neighbor. And you could program the gain, essentially, or the inhibition between those nearest neighbors. You wouldn't do it like you would think about a a normal neural network in the sense that each individual connection is unique. So each pixel would essentially have one same template. So the template would be the same on all of the pixels. But it was very lovely because it could do these incredible, difficult image functions like uh, Laplace transformations and things like that in the analog transient because it was an analog device. It had digital memory on it, but the processing happened in the analog transient moving along these connections. And that seemed to almost entirely disappear. And even Peter Dudek, some of the stuff that he does, quite similar in concept, but he's doing it in-memory compute. So it has that advantage of speed, right? So that's interesting. But I just wonder where those ideas went. And I also wonder at this idea of taking events. 
I've seen many talks on this, so I don't want to point to Gallego as being the poster child for this. But I've seen many of these talks about using events to build up frames. And again, it seems counterproductive, counterintuitive to me. That would be a good way to go. Yeah, so, so maybe I can address the two points, right? So the CNN had its moments. It demonstrated that it could solve evolutionary equations. You, know, you could use it for different things. In fact, there are different folks who are using it for focusing of uh, images coming through the atmosphere to basically the adaptive optics and and these kinds of things. So it had this movement, but it was very specific set of problems that, that could be addressed to it. And it could ultimately be the front end of a image system, but it would be just the front end. In fact, I think there was a project that DARPA funded where Werblin, and I think it was at Berkeley as well, he's famous for having figured out all the cells in the eye and the different function of the different cells do, where they were trying to essentially build a true retinomorphic camera where there's all the different layers and all the different functions start to be implemented in with CNN. In fact, I even think that there was a company that was uh, that came out of this as well. It was uh, Thomas Rosker and his group that actually did something with this as well. But then moving forward to the last thing you said about Gallego. So the reason that ultimately we, we have to do that for these event-based cameras, because pretty much if you look at DVS, DVS is entirely based on motion. Right, change, right? So if you want to see any kind of part of the scene that is that is static, you have to do some kind of reconstruction to get it to see that. ATIS, on the other hand, the prophecy chip has a little bit of a trick under its sleeves in the sense that it can capture both static images and dynamic ones. So that gives it a little bit more additional functionality. And then if you now added some other processing that in fact Jerry Orchard did as part of PhD, where you can use noise to reconstruct the, the missing data, then you get even more information. So, so you layer the static scene, the dynamic scene, and you get even more rich information. That actual construction becomes even more retina, right? Because of the fact that like I was saying earlier on, is that you have this, you have the dynamic cells, but then you also have the static cells, you have the sustained cells. Those guys capture real measurements of the scene, not just the motion. So combination of, of all of this is important. I mean, I guess that's the bottom line. Right? You cannot just do just motion. You have to find some ways to incorporate static scenes as well. I do agree. And this is basically the project I'm working now is about taking inspiration from the retina to add on the hardware. We can already do things in the hardware. And I remember I was asking to Michael Berry in Capocazza, I was asking the layers of the retina and how they work. And I remember that naively I was talking about the bipolar, the amacrines and horizontal cells. And I remember Barry just looking at me and just saying, there are more than 200 cells in the retina and you have loads mm -hmm. of computations already in the retina. So I strongly believe, or at least it's two years that I'm focused on this, that we should directly add more computation in the cameras, on the hardware. So this is the first thing that I'd like to say. But on the other side, just talking about the fact that Gallego and Scaramuzza, they're basically using events frames, right? And um, although my heart breaks in pieces when they use event frames, and I try to don't use it at all, they're leading the way. They're leading in terms of accuracy and performances, what do you think, guys, about this? I, think, I guess for me, it's a question of, that the frames, they have a lot of flexibility about how those frames are constructed. 
right? Regular cameras, you are at the, you know, 30 milliseconds or 16 milliseconds, whatever. In his case, because the events are streamed, you can essentially make a frame that is one millisecond or a frame that is a hundred milliseconds, depending on what's happening in the scene. So you have that dynamic adaptation of the capturing of the information to the task at hand. If I'm looking at somebody just moving very slowly, then maybe, you know, I can make a longer accumulation of events to say something about what's going on. If it's a rocket going by, I got to go faster, clearly, right? And that's why they are able to do so well, because they can make that adaptation. And then the computation matches the needs of the problem at hand. And yeah, so with the events uh, streams, you get a lot of flexibility. And that's an additional advantage. I think what I'm still frustrated by is Mm -hmm. that all of the things we're talking about involve pixels that don't talk to each other side to side. That, to me, is what's interesting. I remember one of the first uh, neuromorphic projects I wrote about, I know we talked about the Mark Tilden one, which was probably the very first, but I remember writing about Reed Harrison's little robot that would do obstacle avoidance using Reichardt filters, so fly's eye motion detection. And one of the things that I really liked about all of that work is that you had these sensors that were automatically interacting with each other to produce an output, to produce a control signal. And what I see with the event cameras is each pixel is its own little universe. Maybe I'm getting that wrong, but that's why you have to gang them up into frames, right? Because each pixel is a pixel until you turn it into an edge. And so you're not getting the side-to-side interaction that I would like to see. And that I think is absolutely clear exists in the eye. And I don't claim to be any kind of biologist, but it's absolutely clear that we have inhibition, we have amplification in the eye. And that's a really important point of how the eye works. Yeah, but I I, I don't disagree with that. I do think that the majority of the chemist cameras do not have, as you point out, lateral interconnections, right? However, but I will point you to one of the earliest forms of event-based cameras ever implemented, which is by um, Kareem Zangul out of Corbin and Wohan's lab, right? He did the most realistic replication that I know at this point of a biological retina, where he had horizontal interactions as well as individual cells and motion estimation as well. He had four types of cells. So the pixels were big. You know, so it was not, you know, megapixels. <laughs> so you're going to get very small rays, but he was able to do that. And that was all implemented in analog, except for the communications out, of course. It was all implemented with a sub-threshold. Really nice work. How long ago was that, though? That was, I would say, early 2000s. So it's been 20 years. So, Ralph, you and I are old enough to have seen kind of technology cycles go by. My first love is optics and photonics. And uh, when I was writing about optical computing back in the late 80s, early 90s, it was all really cool. But the problem is we didn't have any devices back then, really. And we didn't have the materials that we have now. And then by the late 90s, early 2000s, when we actually did start to have some really tiny lasers and things like that could be mass produced and added to chips, Nobody wanted to hear about any of this anymore because it hadn't worked, right? And the thing is, sometimes things don't work just because the technology isn't ready yet. 
the underlying technology isn't ready yet. But that doesn't mean that the idea was wrong, whether that's cellular neural network or what Kobena's student was doing. So I just think it's always worth going back and looking at these ideas and saying, you know what? The pixels were huge, but that was 30 years ago. Would the pixels be huge now? And have we learned things about how we could make simplifications or how we could get economies of scale (laughs) that would make these things more viable today than they would have been when they were first tried and, you know, prototyped. Right. And I just put the two references to uh, Kareem's work. So then you get, you know, you go a little bit earlier than that, which was a precursor again to DVS and company, uh, which is Octopus, right? That one had no interaction to the neighbors for sure, but it was not there based on motion, right? You, You created spikes based on intensity. Of course, we found out very quickly that the brightest spots in the image stole all the bandwidth, right? So that's why you know, the adaptation one, the one that Toby did, was perfect because it spread the events over only things that were salient, which was motion salient, not just intensity salient. I also want to bring attention to what Riyad Benosma has done, right? So the cool thing is that the angle comes from a computer vision perspective. And so does Riyadh, right? Riyadh comes from entirely from a mathematical computer vision. And his previous career before he got into neuromorphics, that's what it was. And he's a, he's a brilliant mathematician. And he was one of the first to start thinking about how can I use these events to get real uh, understanding of what the scene is, right? So I think the first stereo camera that used event-based was, was one of his. And then he's done a whole bunch of stuff with learning, a whole bunch of stuff with uh, looking at the spike trains and applying the mathematics of spike trains to determine what it is that you're looking at and so on. So he's another person that I would very much recommend that the readers or the listeners look at for some really interesting work in this domain. Julia, before you come in with a new point, I wanted to come back to your point from before, which I thought was a really good point, which is that the stuff that Galego and Scaramuts are doing, that it works, um, which is important. I realized that because I've been focusing on what I'm not seeing, it sounds like I'm being very negative, but actually it is really important to say that it works and that we do have things that are uh, running around, flying around, thanks to these kind of algorithms, some of which are frame-based event algorithms. And uh, did you want to say any more about that? What I can say is that like the event-driven community is basically split in two, or I feel it like this. So there are people doing classical computer vision approaches and us. And what I can say is that as much as I love my spiking neural network, detecting motion with the centricity representation of the retina, it's not reliable. It cannot be compared in any way to the precision that you can get with Gallego's work or Scaramuzza's work or, or Schumann Gosch, which is the PhD student. They work a lot also on depth estimation. It's a great work. And as much as I love what I do and the way I do it, uh, what actually the neuromorphic community or the even-based community needs now is things that works, things that actually can go on the market because otherwise we are not believable. So this is what I'm saying. I think that's a really good point. And it's really easy for me to sit back as a journalist and an academic who doesn't have to produce a damn thing and say, oh, wouldn't it be nice if we had all of these bells and whistles? And wouldn't it be nice? But it's true. It's absolutely true. We need technology that works. Agreed. 
Did you have anything more, Ralph? Yeah, no, I wanted to bring up the fact that there's been significant work in terms of processing of event-based signals. The fact that event-based signals now needs to be a little bit more rich, certainly. But I did want to make sure that we, we get it, that ultimately it's a question of the goals that we are going after again. Like what is the application space? And in fact, if you look at prophecy, the movement is towards just motion, right? Because that's a much easier goal to sell, so to speak. At the end of the day, they are about their company, right? They are about making a profit. For us, for Julia and I and, and folks who are looking at basic science, we care more about what it is that we can do about understanding, about you know, producing knowledge, right? So there may be the importance of having all these lateral interactions and all these kinds of things becomes more important, but we'd still need to be um, cognizant of the competing approaches, right? That's why whenever my students write a paper, they have to cite the state of the art, have to say, what is it that you're doing that moves this area of study forward? So yeah, so the fact that Julia is thinking about how do you compete with the types of things that Diego is doing where he is able to get super high accuracy and things like that compared to the pure neuromorphic approach. And how do we blend the two? I think it's an interesting set of questions that needs to be answered and still open. I think this is a great place to stop. Thank you, Julia, for a really interesting interview and Ralph for sharing your insight and experience once again. In the next podcast, I will be talking to Steve Ferber, now Professor Emeritus at the University of Manchester. We hope you will join us then. That brings another episode of EE Times Current to a close. Thank you for listening, and thanks to our guest, Professor Guillermo Gallego from the Technical University of Berlin. EE Times Current is available through the major podcast platforms, but if you reach us at our website, eetimes.com, you'll find a transcript of this episode. EE Times Current is produced by EE Times. It was engineered by Taylor Marvin at Coop Studios. The segment producer was Stephanie Munoz. I'm Eric Singer. Thanks for listening.